And now uh, I want to invite Pastor Frank Berto up here, who is our guest speaker this morning. And Frank is from Living Hope Christian Fellowship in Surrey, uh, a church that's uh, connected to us as well through the same denomination, Mennonite Church of British Columbia. So we have a lot of the same goals, same vision, same passions. We worship, we worship the same God and amazing God, right? So uh, Living Hope is my home church where I grew up at for majority of my years. And uh, Frank came in there just as I was heading out to college, but we still kept an awesome connection. So this is a really fun kind of, you know, kind of clashing of a couple worlds here. I, I love the fact that you're bringing us the word this morning. And uh, yeah, so Frank, uh, can I just pray for you and we'll get you going here. We'll just bring the TV up on stage so we can uh, get the service and hear the message from you. Um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, God, time of worship. And I just pray that you uh, move within all of us this morning uh, through our minds that we have ears to hear uh, from you, your spirit, God, that uh, you can just guide us. And this morning, as we're just learning about uh, you, Jesus, who you are to us, who you mean, uh, how you impact our lives, how you change us, God, just speak through Frank, give him, uh, yeah, the charisma, the confidence to just share an amazing message with us all the way from Surrey, BC, way out west, God. But uh, we're here for a great morning, and I just pray that you bless this time in your name. Amen. Amen. This is called the uh, cheating of the bifocals. I wear contacts and then three, the three packs from Costco of reading glasses, they just are the greatest thing in the world. So you know how you lose them or you sit on them or you put them somewhere else and, and they come in all different flavors and sizes. So I'm slowly working my way up to magnifying glasses, but so far so good. <clears throat> if I were at Living Hope, I would say good morning and then I would say gay. Um, because about half our congregation are refugees from Burma who arrived about 16 years ago. And Golage is good morning. Uh, Golage, Halage, Nilage, uh, as you go through the day. Um, it's been a tremendous blessing to our church to, to recognize that the good news of Jesus has gone around the globe. But uh, it's good to see you this morning. We're going to... Um, do something that you do every week. Talk about Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh. Actually, he, he takes scriptures that are applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament and applies them to himself. Yahweh, God in the flesh. And we're going to revisit, if you want to follow along, John chapter 11, about halfway through. We're going to read John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. So you can turn there in your Bibles or your apps. Um, I'm going to read eventually from the New Living Translation, uh, but we're going to, and it's a revisiting in some ways of a Palm Sunday message, uh, but Palm Sunday messages shouldn't be restricted to um, one week of the year. And what we're going to look at is the various expectations people have of Jesus that I think overlap our own. Who is Jesus? Who is he to us? How do we respond to him? How we can both grasp who he is and completely misunderstand who he is. Uh, you know, um, when he came to Jerusalem, many were expecting a conquering king to ride in and rid them of their major problem, which was obviously Roman occupation, uh, so they thought. And what they got um, was a king on a donkey, without weapons, without an army, but with the Holy Spirit. 
And we're going to back up a bit because often when uh, people look at, uh, and we look at um, Palm Sunday, we tend to focus just on his coming in. But Palm Sunday is actually in context and, and deliberately put together with an amazing event that happened right before, which was the raising of Lazarus. And they flow one into the other. The greatest of his miracles um, deliberately uh, flows into his arrival into the capital city. And what it provides us is a contrast in not just two different responses to Jesus, but many. A story of life and death, of belief and unbelief, of fear and faith. And I think we can see ourselves in many of the responses to Jesus. And as we work through it, I want to encourage um, to grasp with who he is and respond appropriately. So in saying that, who is Jesus to these various groups? And it's interesting, we think, we say Jesus came to bring unity, and in a way he came to bring unity within his family, but when Jesus came, he said, I've come to bring not peace, but a sword. A sword based on how we would respond to him and his claims, because there is a dividing line. Jesus is the person to whom humanity is faces its greatest choice of life or death, of a return to the garden or a remainder in our self-will. So we see five different responses, I think, in the religious and political elite who saw in Jesus a threat to the way things were. He was going to upset the apple cart. Uh, to Lazarus' family, Jesus was precious. To Judas... What an interesting character. Uh, did he see Jesus as a way to uh, skim off some money to get on the inside? Uh, then we can say ordinary or regular Jews, the working people of that time, um, citizens of occupied Israel, what did they see in? And then uh, what they're called Greeks, which is Gentiles, which really is the rest of the world, which is you and me. So let's start out with Lazarus, the life giver. Uh, I love this because uh, what we're going to see uh, here is Jesus actually had friends. And that actual name that the, the God of heaven and earth would call Lazarus and his sister's friends is amazing. And he'd been told that his friend Lazarus was sick. That he was terminally ill. He was in palliative care. And for those of you who've reached that stage in life where either parents or friends have been in palliative care, you know, it's sort of a matter of time. And, and we're trying to make things comfortable. But Jesus kind of faced this dilemma. He knew that going to Jerusalem would cost him his life because the religious, uh, political, police understate that was there was determined uh, pretty much to kill him. And so, does he go see Lazarus and put his own life in danger? Bethany, where Lazarus lived, was a small suburb, uh, perhaps not even as far away as uh, Mission Downtown is from here. But he went. He was willing to give his life for his friends. So we'll start at John chapter uh, 11, verse 17. 
Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, you may have heard this before, but four days is actually a significant figure. There was a common Jewish belief that the spirit kind of would hover around the body perhaps for three days after death. Four days after death is really a way of saying, dead, dead, dead as a doornail. This is not some sort of resuscitation. This is a dead body. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? How many of us have been here, eh? Praying for that miracle at the bedside? When you hear the diagnosis that the cancer is metastasized? You know, Jesus raised from the dead. You know, he spoke the world into being. You know, it was him through whom the Father created everything. Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Yes. And sometimes he doesn't. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Uh, unlike us, you know, we're um, very blessed to have modern hospitals, and as soon as people 
uh, pass away. They're zipped off and, and kept cool, and, and, and very few of us know the smell of death, but they did. They were very familiar with it. And she knew her brother was beyond resuscitating. He was decomposing in the grave. Take away the stone. It's a bad order. He's been in there for four days. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled aside the stone. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, Thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I say it out loud for the sake of all these people saying here, so they will believe that you sent me. Uh, Jesus does these things because he wants us to believe. He wants to demonstrate and show to us he actually is God in the flesh, the creator in the flesh, the him through whom the Garden of Eden uh, took all its life-giving and delight He was here in the flesh. He does these things because he wants us to believe and in so believing have life. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. You know, there's a real... There's a metaphor there, isn't there? When we come to Jesus Christ, when we come and God's Spirit comes in us, the one who created us, there's a way in which grave clothes are let go. I knew, for me, the grave clothes were addiction. But there's a constant ongoing process. And I think for some of us, most of us, it takes a lifetime for the grave clothes to be unwrapped. Sometimes he takes away the obvious sin, but the little bitternesses and the dysfunctions of character and the way in which we're still self-centered, it takes a lifetime for the grave clothes to be unwrapped. But this is the context to the triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem. This is the foundational, this is the miracle that precedes all that is about to come. He's done this Absolutely amazing thing, demonstrated that he has life over death, uh, spoken to a body in the grave that's beyond dead. Recreated it, brought life back into it. So there's an official reaction. Now remember, this is one of those states that Sometimes I think we Christians are in a habit of wanting to have. We want the government to be run by good, good Christian people, good religious people, because they'll do the right thing. You know, they understand what's it. They're not concerned about power. They're concerned about <clears throat> the kingdom of God. So let's make sure that we get good, <clears throat> that we, we, we bring, bring our societies under the control of Christian people. Because ha- Christians having power, you know, Religious people having power. That's the, that's the answer to all problems, isn't it? My tongue is firmly planted in cheek. Because I can tell you, actually, if you've ever read some of the stuff that the Pharisees uh, wrote from that time, actually, it's, it's delightful devotional material. And, and we'll see, actually, you know, if you follow the expansion of the early church, uh, lots of these guys, primarily men, but lots of these guys got it. They became his followers. We have Nicodemus. The church was grounded in, in solid teaching. But 
having religious leaders with the um, levers of political power is not how the kingdom comes. It doesn't mean don't get involved and don't pray for good things and, and don't try and, and do righteousness, but it doesn't bring the kingdom of God. We will not elect the kingdom of God on earth. He will come again. John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Oh, yahoo, they've heard. This must be great. Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. They even acknowledge, you know, blind, seeing, paralyzed, walking, dead coming to life. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Oh, no. <laughs> then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. He'll upset the status quo. And they're projecting things that they think will happen. It's ironic. They thought, you know, we better squash this because it'll, the Romans will destroy our nation. And so they did squash it. And 40 years later, the Romans came and completely destroyed the nation, raised the temple. The temple's never been erected again, burned to the ground. The stones cleared off down to the foundations. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't you realize, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed? He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. Uh, we at Living Hope have been working our way through the book of Genesis. And boom, in chapter 12, this figure named Abraham comes along. And to him, God promises, you know, through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Amen? And so you can see how God is able to be master of entire history. This, he said that promise to Abraham 2,000 years before, and here it has come true. That Jesus will die not only for the nation, but also for all the scattered children of God throughout the world, which uh, read into it, you and me. Abraham's promise fulfilled. And it took 2,000 years, so uh, God's, God's patient. We're 2,000 years now removed from this, the same amount of time. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness, to the village of Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country had arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for the Passover, will he? Because well, they're thinking, you know, they know that there's a bounty on his head. 
Meanwhile, the leading priests and the Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. Because the entrance of Jesus disturbs the status quo. So then we come to this contrast. So we've seen how the religious leaders react to him. Then we come to Lazarus' family. We're in John chapter 12, verse 1 right now. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Uh, you know, I, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Sometimes I know when I read the Bible, it just goes by. I've heard this before. But can you imagine the excitement of these people? My brother was dead. We were watching him in palliative care. He was getting worse and worse. The tumors were spreading. He was, it was hopeless. And we watched him draw his last breath, fight for his last breath, and he died. And we were grief-stuck because he was young. He was 40-some-odd, and he's dead, and his family's dead, and his, we're a tight family, and we're just weeping. And then Jesus came, and he's alive. And, Jesus, and we invited Jesus over, and he's coming for dinner. Can you imagine how excited, how happy they are? The king of life is in their home. They're having a meal together. And then you can understand this. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. This appalling, overwhelming scene. You know, uh, this perfume was probably worth an average year's wages. You know, between forty and $80,000, maybe all of Mary's inheritance. And she pours it on his feet and wipes it with her hair. And that's, that's startling. That's weird. Except that her brother sits beside her, alive, breathing. And this is the life giver. And this is the rabbi, the teacher. And he's worth everything. Everything, I'll pour it on his feet because he gave my brother life. He is life. <laughs> then a different reaction. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. But it's easy to mask <coughs> our intentions in religious language. I'm caring for the poor. And you can draw near to Jesus for the entire wrong reasons. Who knows, did Judas want to be on the inside of this happening thing, be close to the action? Was it just a financial opportunity for him? Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And of course, we know always having the poor among us means opportunity to serve in his name always. 
When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him, and also to see Lazarus, the man who Jesus had raised from the dead. I'd want to see him too. You know, I saw him with the tumors. I knew he was sick. He was my friend. He lived in this small village. It's a small town. We all knew Lazarus was dying. We know his family. But, I, but he's alive. I've got to see this for myself. <laughs> I laugh because it's so ironic. But the scriptures are written this way, so we catch the contrast. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it's because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. You know, our religiousness and our desire for things to remain the same can actually make us do death-dealing things. The king comes home. The king comes to the capital city, the city of the king, starting at verse 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. And may I say that I think that's a good place for us as followers of Jesus to often say, you know, there's often times that I don't understand what Jesus is doing right at this moment. But later on, I do. You know, the journey of Jesus with Jesus, and and some of you may have, for me, it's been 40 years since he took my addiction away, but I still feel like I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of what he's doing. And some things I hadn't understood then, I'm beginning to get a glimpse now. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Let me say, brothers and sisters, you too have miraculous signs. Even if you grew up in church and you know Jesus now, that's a miraculous sign. You believe in a God you can't see, but his spirit has come into your life and you're aware that this world is in the hands of a God. That's a miraculous sign. If you tell others about it, God will take your testimony and draw others to himself. Some of you may have had more dramatic testimonies, but your experience with Jesus Christ, if you give words to it, he takes those words. Those words become life by the Holy Spirit to bring life to others. And then the religious leaders again. And the Pharisees said to each other, look, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And then there's this really interesting interlude that I have not understood for years, but just recently have come to kind of see, oh, that's what's happening here. Because there's this group of people who come looking for Jesus, and they ask about it, but then the story just stops, or so it seems. But there's a reason uh, that it's put in this order. Some Greeks 
who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and together they went to ask Jesus. Now, notice what Jesus says immediately after this, because there's no record of him ever meeting these people. It just changes. But here, the blessing to Abraham continues to be fulfilled. You know, the blessing that through you, all nations on earth would be blessed. Here's the nations coming to see Jesus. Now the time has come. Now the time is coming for the blessing on the nations. Now the time has come for that blessing to come through the sacrifice of the Son of God. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into His glory through the gate of death, through the cross. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. He's talking about his own life. You know, he dies, and then out of his resurrection comes life to the world. But he also talks about our lives as we die to ourselves and hide our lives in Jesus Christ through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you know, says, bring a harvest of 30, 60, 100 times in our own lives. Those who love their life in the world, in this world, will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me through the cross because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. <clears throat> Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven again, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. As the voice spoke at his baptism, as the voice spoke at his transfiguration on the mountain, as he brought glory to his name by raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' very being brings glory to God. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Jesus told them, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself, including those Greeks, including you and me. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Jesus was completely in charge of the time and place of the yielding of his life. It did not take him by surprise. Is Jesus the Messiah? And we're going to finish with verses 34 to 38. <clears throat> the crowd responded, We understood from Scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is the Son of Man anyways? And you know, 
it takes the Holy Spirit to open the Scriptures to us. Of course the Messiah was going to live forever, and he was going to rule. And you can see that written throughout the Old Testament. There's lots of pictures of uh, the swords being beaten into plowshares, and uh, people living safely in their own fields in a time of milk and honey. But there's also Isaiah 53, which says the servant will suffer and yield his life to gather the sheep together. It's possible to misunderstand God's actions. We are only human. Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they are going. And I've watched it in my life, and it almost seems rapidly progressing. Our world is so in darkness that we are seeking justice and goodness in bondage and perversion and destruction. And it seems to be accelerating. Put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you'll become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? And to some extent, we still live in this time. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to come uh, 50 days later. And many did believe, and, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that men and women are transformed. But Jesus is not validated by a popularity contest. He doesn't need our voices to say, yeah, you're right. We need to say he's right for our sake. (laughs) So who is Jesus? Now as I relist these five um, groups, I say I can understand and identify with all of them in certain ways. And and we're being invited into understanding him in a way that's uh, life-giving. What will I choose? The religious political elite... Uh, they wanted to preserve stability. They wanted to preserve the state. They were at this interesting conjunction of the oppressive empire. Maybe it's the modern-day Russia or your small neighbor of America, whatever. You found this sweet spot of stability in cooperating with these figures. And, And here comes Jesus, looking like the Messiah, doing the things that the Messiah would do, obviously miraculous signs, but I want to keep stability. And I kind of like my privileged place in that power structure, but I want things to stay the way they are. And the difficulty with Jesus, when he moves in by his spirit, things don't stay the way they are. Not in your country. Not in your church, if the spirit is moving in your church, in my church, You know, my first responsibility to something new usually is to say no. (laughs) When my daughters ask me to do something, my first answer is no, and then I have to go away and God wrestles with me. You know how it is in church. Our first responsibility, our first response is often no. 
But he's patient. He's a parent. And sometimes you lose sight of the greater picture. And sometimes there's a choice between faith and Scripture and the moving of the Spirit and stability and status. And Jesus' death would seem to be better for the elite than suffering the loss of power. Jesus upsets the apple cart and he kicks the comforting uh, chair out from under us. Where is Jesus kicking the chair in your life? (laughs) You may be 20, you may be 63 like I will be in a week or two. You may be 80. Jesus is still poking at the comforts in your life. (laughs) If you're 85, Jesus still wants transformation in your life. Just as dramatically as he wants it in teenagers. And then Judas. We don't know. I mean, books have been written speculating about his motivation. He obviously liked money, and there was a chance to skim. But what other reasons did he have for being near to Jesus? It benefited him to be identified with this group up to a point. He was with the in crowd, the happening thing. But the cost was getting high. And then there were the ordinary folks. Uh, They wanted change, but they had the wrong idea of the problem. The problem was out there. It was a, a social political structure. It was the oppression of the Romans which was significant and lousy and embarrassing and humiliating. You had to pass by these tax collector booths uh, that were run by traitors with the power of the oppressive Roman army with them, you know, and and they wanted it. And they thought, change out there will change the situation. And Jesus actually says, no, actually the problem's in here. And it's in here for you and and it's in here for the Romans. This is where the problem is and this is where the problem remains. You know, it is easy to look in the world, and, and I don't know exactly, and don't hear me to say it's important we're given the, the ability to vote and be in, involved in the social prog- uh, um, development of our nation, but that's not, that won't bring the kingdom of God. Make sure if you're going to pour your energies in to fight for something, you're fighting for the transformation of the human heart by yielding to Jesus Christ. And then there's Lazarus' family. And I actually suggest they really are, they've got it. And, and, and I love, because they treat Jesus as an object of worship, as Yahweh in the flesh. When you get down on your hands and knees and, and pour out your life savings on his feet and wipe them, and, and she's Mary and Martha, they've got something true here. This is the Lord. And the amazing thing is, not only is he is their Lord and their master, but he eats a meal with them. He comes home. They're his friends. And, and so the Christian message is this absolutely stunning message that the creator of heaven and earth, the one whom, when he's revealed in his full glory, you know, he's up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John are there. They, they're terrified because they see him for who he is. But he says, I'm your friend. And he comes in and he has a meal with Lazarus' family, and, and, and they laugh, and they eat, and they have break bread with him, and they worship him, and that's, that's the miracle. God is not far off. He's here, known in Jesus Christ. He likes you. He calls you friend. 
Not that we're equals with him, but that he raises us up and throws his arms around us. God Almighty, who lives in unapproachable light, has come near. We can come boldly before his throne. He has become one of us for us. And then there's the Greeks. Just a way of saying, not just Jews, not just uh, genetic descendants of Abraham, but you and me in his mind from before the beginning of time. John says this about the book he wrote, and just jumping ahead to chapter 20, why he wrote all this stuff, why he put the story of Lazarus together with the coming into Jerusalem. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. The story, and story doesn't mean fiction, this beautifully woven collection of what Jesus did as he came to his death, giving out life prior to his death and after his death, is that you and I might believe and have life in his name. Amen? Grant, do I end off with a benediction? I'm going to ask you to take a minute, close your eyes, and perhaps place yourself in Lazarus's home with Mary and Martha and whatever kids and relatives are around sitting at that meal. And close your eyes. And here's the Lord, the one who actually saw you in your mother's womb and all the days ordained for you before one of them came to being, weaving you together in the womb, knowing you by name, and now you're sitting at the table with him. God the Son, the Eternal Son, Yahweh, taking on full humanity and breaking bread with you and giving life to you and your brother and you're laughing with him and you're eating with him and you know that in being with him you're seeing into life that goes beyond your physical death into life everlasting into a goodness that's here and that's coming that's already present and not yet and he looks at you and he calls you by name. And he's about to bear every sin, every shame, everything that you cannot bear to stand, that you know in your life. And he's about to take it upon himself and extinguish its power on the cross. And in return, give you life as you trust in him.
and he passes the bread to you and you laugh. Amen. The blessing that Yahweh commanded the priests to put day after day every time they talk to the people on each other comes from Numbers chapter 6. And it's lovely. The Lord bless you. Give you shalom, wholeness of life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. He's looking at you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, look you full in the life, in the face, and give you peace, give you shalom. Put your life in whole order. Amen? So we have coffee together now, Grant, and we enjoy the Lord who made us. Thank you.